Good morning, Grace Church, Long Beach. I want to start out this morning with a, with a bit of a confession. It's, it's not a very juicy confession, um, but, but I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. Most of my time, I, I'm not preaching sermons, but I am teaching classes on theology and, and spiritual formation. But, but here's the secret. When I, when I teach those classes, I have two hours and 50 minutes. And even with two hours and 50 minutes, I always have more to say at the end of my class. I always have more to say at the end of 15 weeks of class. I, I have several classes that I teach one after another, and I still don't get through everything I want to say. So we have about 30 minutes here this morning, and, and I just want to confess that there's much more that I'd like to say that we're just not going to have time to do this morning. But, but here we go. So if you've been around Grace for a while, you've probably heard the name Eugene Peterson. Uh, many, many different people have referred to Peterson from time to time. I know some of you have read Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a, was a pastor for most of his life, and he, he pastored intentionally small churches. Uh, Peterson believed that, that just as Jesus knows the names of his sheep, so a, a pastor, a local church pastor, should know the names of his congregants, of his or her congregants, that, that, that a church is getting too big if he wasn't able to know everyone's name. So Peterson kept the churches that he served at around two to 300 people. He kept them intentionally small. It's partly because of that way of doing ministry that, that Peterson became sought after. He became rather well known. He wrote some books and he was an excellent writer, a very creative writer, and, and his books did quite well. He ended his career as professor of spiritual theology at, at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. But Peterson's perhaps uh, most well-known for his translation, or really his paraphrase, of the entire Bible that is called The Message. So you may have heard of The Message. That's Eugene Peterson. That's the paraphrase of the Bible that he developed. Peterson died a couple years ago now, and his memorial service is online. You can watch a video of it on YouTube. It was a rather small affair, uh, as was typical of, of Peterson's way. One of his sons pays a tribute to him uh, in the memorial service. And, and, and his son uh, says something that, that has stuck with me. He, he says, Dad, you fooled them all. Uh, you wrote all these books, you gave all these sermons, but you really only had one message. His son says, Dad, you really only had one sermon, one message, and you just said it in, in different ways every time. And in every book, you just said it a little bit differently. And now this, 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 this translation, the message, it's gone, gone around the world, and you're fooling the world. Because, Dad, you really only have one sermon. You really only have one message. He says, I know because for 50 years you steal into my room at night and whisper softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over. You don't bury it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Peterson's one message, so says his son, is that God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless.
I take some solace in the idea that a preacher or teacher only has one message, one sermon. I feel like every time I'm up here in front of you, I I always land in more or less the same place. I, I always come down on the same message. Recently, I've been putting it this way. What the Christian life is ultimately about, really what human life is ultimately about, is to gently and increasingly avail ourselves of the gracious availability of God's love. That really what the Christian life is ultimately all about, and therefore really human life is ultimately all about, is to increasingly, gradually, and gently avail ourselves of the gracious availability of God's presence and love. There's other ways to say it. Uh, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Or Paul says, now that you have life in the spirit, so walk in the spirit. And if you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And the fruit of the spirit are love and joy and peace. Or Jesus says, seek first the reign of God and all these things will be added unto you. Or in John 15, verse 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he or she it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you might immediately say, but, but, but what about evangelism? Or, or what about worship? Or, or what about working for justice in the world? Or what about serving those in need? Or, or fostering community in the body of Christ? What about human flourishing in all things? What about impacting culture with, with truth and, and goodness and beauty? What, what about those aims? And I would say, yeah, yeah. All of those are important parts of a full-orbed Christian life together. But, but all of our efforts in those arenas will go a whole lot better if we're abiding with Jesus and if we're doing those things out of his transforming work in our lives. And yet that puts a lot of pressure on this idea of abiding or walking in the spirit or drawing near to God. This this gentle and gradual availing ourselves of his availability. What does that look like? Uh, How does that work in real life? How does that work in my life, in your life? And the problem here is, is, is that I feel like we've probably heard this all before. Uh, I mean, I grew up with this phrase that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just abide in the vine, brother or sister. Uh, it can sound so cliche, so trite, overly familiar. I, I mean, I can kind of imagine someone thinking at this point, Okay, so the point of what he's saying is just dwell with Jesus, abide with Jesus. Okay, you know, what's for lunch? <laughs> When's the game on? You know, what, what do we do for the rest of the day? And so I think one reason why it's easier to make Christianity about almost anything else other than abiding in the vine 
is that it's often so unclear, so intangible, what abiding or walking in the Spirit really involves, what it looks like. I mean, I know what studying the Bible looks like. I can do that. I know what evangelism looks like. Make the Christian life about that. I know what service looks like. I know what worship looks like. I know what to do. But abiding, remaining, dwelling, seeking first, drawing near to God, walking in the Spirit, how does that work exactly? Um, And how does that transform us? How does that actually change our lives? It's, It's going to be very hard, perhaps even impossible, to linger very long with Jesus and his Father by the Spirit if I don't really know what I'm doing there and I don't know how what I'm doing is actually going to change me, especially if I don't see much change, perhaps both in myself and in others. Uh, this, this whole Christianity thing can start to feel a bit like a, like a game or, or, or a charade or even a, a game of charades, a kind of pretending uh, that we get it, that it's working. Um, is it really working? And so I I pleaded with Daniel, I I begged him really uh, to let me do a follow-up sermon to the sermon I gave two weeks ago now. Uh, We've been working through John 15 and and two weeks ago I, I gave a sermon on bearing fruit. And I said to Daniel, please, please, Daniel, would you let me give a follow-up sermon? I want to talk more about the dynamics of bearing fruit. And Daniel finally said, okay, Steve, okay. You can, you can preach again. So here we are. I, I want to talk to you this morning about the dynamics of bearing fruit, about, about this process of abiding in the vine such that we bear fruit. I want to talk about what it is about abiding in Jesus that brings about fruit in our lives. So, so I want to start uh, where we left off last time. Uh, where we left off last time, which was this, that the fruit that Jesus is talking about in John 15, the fruit that glorifies God, Jesus says, is every loving word and deed that proceeds from the Christ-formed inner lives of those who are abiding in Jesus. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the fruit that glorifies God is every loving word indeed that proceeds from the Christ-formed inner lives of those who are abiding in Jesus. The, The fruit is a life that's looking more and more like the life of Jesus, both the inner life of Jesus, his his joy, his peace, his love, his compassion, and the outer life of Jesus, his service, his sacrificial love. And in Jesus' life, it was almost always for those in greatest need, those who were marginalized, those who were excluded, women in his time and, and prostitutes and the poor and those who were sick and the lepers and the lame. Jesus is constantly turning with compassion and love to those in his midst who are in the most need, the greatest need. Wouldn't everything we do, everything we're called to do, go a whole lot better 
if we were more like that. If through abiding in the vine, we were becoming more and more like Jesus and bearing the kind of fruit that we see in his life. Well, I want to talk a bit about that process then, and I want, to, I want to talk about it in this way. I want to talk about three models. Really, there's a fourth model, but we'll start, we'll start with three models of spiritual transformation, three, three ways we might understand what it is to abide with Jesus. And the first one I'm going to call magic Christianity. See, sometimes we might hear abiding with Jesus in a magical kind of way. Uh, we really don't know what this is. It's kind of a mystery. We don't know how it works. But somehow, if, if we pray, if we read the Bible, if we go to church, if we worship, if we serve, uh, th that, that maybe with some Bible memorization and a bit of fasting thrown in, that, that somehow God changes us. It's, it's kind of magical. You see, when magic happens, we, we don't see the connection between what the magician did and what happened next. The, the magician pulls the rabbit out of the hat, but we thought the hat was empty. We don't see a connection between what goes in and what comes out. And a magic view of Christianity is a view that says there's no real connection. We, we do various things and God does something and we don't really know how what we do is connected to what he does. On a magical view of Christian growth, we don't see the connection between what we do, prayer, Bible study, worship, waiting on God, and what God does. Whammo, it just happens. God changes us. Or he doesn't. And, and, and we don't really understand why. I think there are two practical problems with this way of approaching our Christian lives. The, the first is that it's going to be very difficult to sustain this because it's going to feel like going through the motions. And it's going to feel like going through the motions because it is. Right? We're just doing these things, but we don't really get why we do them. It's just what Christians do. It was just how we were raised. We, we've just fallen into those habits. There's no rhyme or reason for our practices. We just do what we're told and hope and pray for the best. That's going to be very difficult to sustain. A second practical problem is that because of the above, th this way of approaching our Christian lives is going to be very frustrating. Why would a loving father treat his children like this? What, what kind of life is this? You know, just, just do this, do this, do this, and, and I'll eventually show up and, and, and help you out. And there's really no connection. It's keeping us in the dark. Uh, again, the Christian life feels a bit like a game. Uh, why don't you change us, God? Why don't you show up? Why don't you do more? The deeper problem to this magic view is, is a biblical problem. Um, scripture makes clear that this isn't how God operates. Uh, we could think of many passages here. I think of, of Matthew 11, come unto me, take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me. 
Uh, Or Matthew 6, Jesus teaches, when you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites do. But when you pray, do it like this. He's correcting how they're going about their Christian life. He's correcting it. He wants them to learn from him because there actually is a way of living life with him. It is a discipleship process. It is a learning process. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to do all that I've commanded. Don't just tell them to do what I've commanded, but teach them to do. Teach them to become the kinds of persons who are more and more like Jesus. So the the, the deeper problem with the magical view is that scripture makes clear it's not magic. There is some connection between what we do and what God is doing in us. But what is that connection? Well, that's where where we're liable to fall into the second view, which I'm going to call causal Christianity or reward and punishment spirituality. This is the idea that, well, what it really is to abide in the vine, it's really this cause and effect process based on earning or merit. If I just do enough of the right things, if I abide in the vine, then God will do things for me. So if I just read my Bible enough and pray enough and witness enough and serve enough and and try really hard, then, then God will do good things for me. It's a cause and effect process. And the idea is if, if, if I'm good, God will be good. And the flip side is if, if I fail, if I'm not good, if I mess up, then he's probably going to get me. This cause and effect Christianity. This is probably the default position for most Christians. This is, this is probably what we're actually most comfortable with because we're in control. It's, it's a contractual arrangement. If, if I just do A, B, C, and D, then God has to do X, Y, and Z. And I know who to blame. Uh, either I, I, I kept my part and God needs now to keep his part, or I didn't keep my part and it's on me. Most of us think, even though theologically, biblically, we might know better, that God somehow likes us better when we're good. And actually, he's got a little bit of wrath and anger left over to get us when we're bad. So the practical problem here is that we're in control, not God. If we're doing the right things, then he's contractually obligated to bless our lives and to answer our prayers and to make us fruitful. Of course, if we're not doing the right things, then we're guilt-ridden. It's, it's our fault. Uh, we're a failure. And God is not there to help us. In fact, he's against us. The biblical problem with this view is that it's a form of works righteousness. It's it's a returning to a law-based way of living life with God. It's, it's, uh, as Paul says in the Galatians, to the Galatians, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your own flesh, by your own self-effort? Are you returning to the works of the law? See, the problem is is that this view is is the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that, that there's nothing we can do or not do that will make God love us more or make God love us less. He loves us perfectly and fully in Christ. There's no condemnation. So now what's our move? 
we're not in control. We can't earn. We can't merit. We can't, we can't demerit. This isn't the way the Christian life works. And yet, and yet for many of us, this is going to be probably the way that we fall into. There's a third model of the Christian life. This is what I'm going to call willpower Christianity. Or we might call it Nike Christianity. This, this is just do it. Uh, I died for you on the cross, Jesus tells us. Now, now it's your turn. Get on with things. Try to live better. Try harder. Uh, I, I did so much for you. Now you owe me. Uh, try, to, try to live your life better. It's, it's a way of willpower. It's a way of self-effort. It's a, it's a way not of trying to earn God's love, but, but a way of, of simply trying to be good in our own strength and power. Maybe the Holy Spirit is kind of behind us, pushing us or kicking us, but really it's all on us. This too is going to be a very tempting way to live the Christian life. Um, we're, we're back in control. It, it's really all on us. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Now let me see if I can pay you back with a life of sacrificial service and good works. The practical problem here depends on how strong your willpower is. If you have a willpower of steel and you can pull this off, if you can get up early and read your Bible every day and pray and, 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 and look like you're a good, holy, righteous person, then the practical problem is going to be a kind of inner emptiness and loneliness and self-righteousness and probably a judgmental and condemning spirit. See, people who are able to pull this off are really not doing it through Christ. They're doing it through their own strength of will. And that's a very lonely, autonomous way to live. It's actually what, what, what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23. It's, it's a kind of cleaning the outside of the cup, but not cleaning the inside of the cup. And so it leaves us fairly empty inside, but we look good on the outside. The practical problem, if you can pull it off, is going to be loneliness, uh, emptiness, feeling good about yourself, and oftentimes judging and condemning those who don't have as strong of a will as you have. If your willpower is more like mine, <laughs> uh, the, the practical problem will be that this model is debilitating and discouraging. We, we do well for a little while, but then we don't do well. And then we pick ourselves back up and we try hard again, but then we don't. Remember one time I had a student come to me and he said, he said Dr. Porter, I've been living my Christian life this way for my whole life. I, I try really, really hard not to sin. I fail. I confess and I try harder the next time. And I sin, and I confess, and I try harder the next time. That's willpower Christianity. Just do it, just try harder, just dig deeper. You see, Jesus didn't say, I am the magic genie, and you are Aladdin. Uh, if, if you just rub the lantern enough times, I will magically appear and give you fruit. No, he didn't say that. It's not magic. He didn't say, uh, I'm the rewarder of those who are good and you owe me good deeds. 
I'll give you some fruit in exchange for your efforts to please me. It wasn't about cause and effect. It wasn't about earning. He didn't say, I'm the taskmaster and you're a failure. If you just try harder this week to be good, then you'd be more fruitful. You see, he could have said that. There were taskmasters. There, there, were, there were rewards and punishment. There, 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 were, there were magic ideas in Jesus' day. But, but that's not what he says. Instead, he says, I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. He does say, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever eats of me will never be hungry. He does say in John 4, uh, I am living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give that person, that person will never be thirsty again. He does say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus does say, these metaphors he uses, a branch and a vine, bread, water, a good shepherd, light, these are organic metaphors. They're, they're personal metaphors. Life with Jesus abiding in him is, is a relationally nourishing way, an, an interpersonal, interactive way, a way of personal and communal dependence on Jesus and his Father by the Spirit. But see, you might hear that and you might think, but isn't that just kind of magic? Uh, isn't that just kind of earning or, or doesn't he really mean just try harder? And I want to say no. And this is where I need my additional two hours of class time and maybe 15 weeks. Um, uh, but, but the metaphor, again, of the branch and the vine, it's a nourishing metaphor. It's an interpersonal metaphor. And I actually think if we think about it, we, we do know something about how personal relationships can be nourishing, how they can be life-giving how they can actually bring joy and love and peace, how, how relationships can change us. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's a, a, a commentator on the book of John, he, he writes this, the, the imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. But the point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance on him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life, this is the sine qua non of spiritual fruitfulness. Or C.S. Lewis says this, the real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, that's the Greek word for life there, his, his zoe into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that does not like it is the part of you that's still tin. Uh, 
This abiding with Jesus is a nourishing, organic, relational way that brings about change because we were made for relationship. St. Augustine says, we were made for thee, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, our job is to avail ourselves over and over and over again until it becomes habitual of the availability of God. Let me try to make this point in closing with, with an analogy. Have you ever been a part of, a, of an affirmation group? Do you know what these are? Um, you know, so, sometimes uh, we, we, we put someone in the center. Maybe it's their birthday or maybe for some reason we're focusing on them. We put them in the center of a group and, and we get around them and, and we start to affirm them. I have to confess, second confession uh, today, I don't like these groups. I don't like to be in the middle. I don't like to be on the outside. But, but I have to tell you, uh, they work. If you find people who really know one another and you put that person in the middle of the circle and, and you begin to speak words of love and care and affirmation, you might even speak challenging words, but they're, but they're filled with with. with knowing the person well, and and care, and acceptance. And and so if the person can sit there and not deflect what's being said, actually receive the meaning, the the relational love and care that's being offered, you'll see, you know, they'll start to cry, right? Or you'll see a little smile come across because that's starting to get in. That love, that care, that nurture is starting to fill their coffers. They're starting to open up their heart to the reality that these people know me. They see me. They accept me. They love me. Now, I'm kind of a master at defensiveness, so I'm usually sitting there thinking, oh, if they really knew me, they wouldn't say that. And, oh, he's just saying that because, you know, he feels like he has to. Or, you know, that's not really true. So I'm going to deflect a lot of that. And we often have resistance to this kind of relational nurture, this kind of relational care. But see, the Christian view is that each and every day, really all day, every moment, we're in the affirmation group of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're speaking into our lives. Paul says it like this. He says that the Spirit of God is crying out in your heart, try harder. No, no, he's not, he's not crying that out. The Spirit of God is crying out in your heart, Abba, Father. You, you see, Paul says the Spirit of God is actually in the core of your being telling you that, that you are the child of Abba. Elsewhere, Paul says that the Spirit actually testifies. The Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. The the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are surrounding us. We live in their Trinitarian love and care. And they're constantly speaking to us that you're a beloved child of God. Now again, if you're anything like me, uh, you might be thinking, well, if you really knew me, you wouldn't say that. But here's the catch. They really do know us. 
They know us better than we know ourselves. This, this Trinitarian affirmation group, it's a little dicey. These folks know us well. They love us a lot. They're after us. They're relentless. And sometimes the affirmations can even sting or challenge a bit. Um, they call it tough love. And again, it looks like our job is to gently, increasingly, gradually avail ourselves, open ourselves, receive more and more the gracious availability of God's Trinitarian loving care in our lives. So what do we do? Some of you might be hearing this and, and you're saying to yourself, uh, amen, uh, I get it. That's what I'm doing. And to you, I just want to say, praise God. <laughs> uh, keep on keeping on, uh, further up and further in. Thank you for, for living your life more and more in this abiding way. But others of you might be hearing this and you're saying to yourselves, I'm not sure I get it. I, I, I don't know if I agree. I don't know if I, if I want to agree. Uh, I just don't really know what this way with Jesus looks like. Or, or maybe you're just too tired to try this again. You, you feel like you've been down this road. Uh, how do I depend on an invisible friend? I, I, I don't get it. Maybe you're just saying, you know, what's for lunch? When's the game on? And, and to you, I, I want to say, I, I hear you. And I'm not sure I get it either. And the only place to really start any venture is right where you are. Right where we are. So if you're in that camp, what do you do? Well, I want to suggest two things. Maybe one thing to do is to turn to the person next to you or even on the chat function and say, how do you abide in the vine? Uh, what does that look like in your life? I mean, how often are you having conversations during your day and your week about how it's going in your interactive, nourishing relationship with Jesus? So find someone that you can talk to about that. I have a few different conversations going with people about what abiding in the vine, what, what receiving this life looks like and the challenges of it and the places we fail and the places we succeed. So maybe one thing to do is, is, is just ask somebody, do, do you do this? What does it look like for you? How's it going? But maybe the most important thing to do is to let Jesus know that you're open to finding out a little bit more about his way and his truth and his life. There's this, this line in Matthew's gospel, I mentioned it before, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. 
come to me. And, and I think that's a, a, a kind of cool line, right? Because it suggests that Jesus is still in the business of teaching his followers how to live. Uh, the, the, the Jesus school is always in session. It didn't get shut down in quarantine. It, there's no distance learning here. Jesus is available. He, he wants to teach us how to live life with him in his father's kingdom by the spirit. That's how he lived life. And if we abide in him, we walk as Jesus walked. And, and he's our teacher. And so we, we start to look for ways that Jesus is going to show you and show me what it looks like to abide. So maybe that's another thing to do. Just ask Jesus to keep showing you the next step. Because if, if Peterson's right, then God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Would you pray with me? And maybe just take a, a moment in, in prayer uh, just to locate yourself before God. Um, take a moment just in your own prayer just to, just to let Jesus know whether you're interested in learning more about life with him in his father's kingdom. So Jesus, um, here we are. And uh, our money's on you. Uh, that you are the resurrected living Lord. Uh, that as you say uh, to your disciples, uh, go into all the world and, and make disciples and, and, and teach them to do. And lo, I am with you always. That, that, that you're still involved. You, you haven't gone anywhere. You're, you're right with us. As Lewis says, you're, you're right at our side. That you want to teach us more and more about what it means to live life in your kingdom so that we might become more and more like you, your love, your joy, your peace, so that we might be agents of reconciliation, of love uh, to those around us, that we might together help meet uh, the needs of a lost and thirsty world. So, Lord Jesus, thank you, and we pray for your help. Amen. Was that a take? All right.